this week on Log It. We are here to discuss Eyes Wide Shut, Kubrick's last movie, the movie that killed him possibly. I'm here to talk about it with my good friend, Angelo. Hey, hey, how's it going, man? Good, how are you doing? Did you watch Eyes Wide Shut? Oh, yes, I did. That's why I'm on my second cup of coffee, because I could not stop thinking about that movie and the experience of rewatching it and me thinking like, yeah, there's there's some scary shit in our world that this movie is probably trying to tell us, you know, but we yeah. don't realize that like it's right in front of us. So yeah, well, that's why they they killed Kubrick because of that. Oh, we'll see. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll, get, we'll get into that. Uh, don't want to make again. any official claims here, you know, but you know, we could talk conspiracy and I can't wait to talk about it. So. Yeah, there's a lot of conspiracies around this movie. It's a very weird movie. It's very open-ended. There's a lot of interpretations that you can take from it. E- even this time watching it, I don't know how I feel. I feel like I my opinion changes like while I'm watching the movie. But we can talk about those opinions more when we get to Eyes Wide Shut. First, we're going to jump straight into Last Four. Angelo, you want to do your Last Four to kick it off? So my last four, starting from the film we're going to talk about today, so I won't say too much. So yeah, it was Eyes Wide Shut. And I was so excited because the Blu-ray also had like a bonus feature. So I was like, man, there's going to be a lot of documentaries, a lot of behind the scenes insights. Right. But so the big documentary on that Blu-ray is called The Last Movie about Stanley Kubrick and Eyes Wide Shut. So I was like, all right, I'm, I'm in. I'm going to get a lot of research. And unfortunately, the documentary was just more with the cast of the movie, just talking about his works overall from the beginning to, to the end, which they do get into a little bit of Eyes Wide Shut, but they don't even like hmm. show any behind the scenes photos or, or, or videos. They just just talk about, yeah, it was great working with Stanley. It's a shame that he passed. So it was like the more surface level type of documentary which was cool it was nice seeing all of them especially tom cruise really appreciate his his work and being honored to be to be working with kubrick and seeing their takes on their works was nice but i was hoping for more insight on the movie yeah. and more details on like why was this like the movie i know they get into little things but never like enough where i'm like getting chills like knowing more about what this movie is so so yeah. that was the second thing i watched was that documentary the last movie so That's we'll cool. get into that for sure and then Third thing I watched, so shout out to my uh, good friends that 564 Presents. They did a double feature last night. Or actually, it was Johnny. Johnny, who had last week, did a nice. crime noir double feature. The first film on that double feature was called White Heat from 1949. I've never seen it nor really heard of it. Classic crime, bad guys, fugitives, black and white noir movie. It was directed cool. by Raoul Walsh, so it's from 1949. It's pretty cool. I would probably give it a, another watch down the road if I'm feeling like like right now it's noir November, so maybe that would be a good recommendation <laughs> nice, for, all, yeah. for all you noir people out there. And the, the second film of that double feature last night was a film called Fates of Black, which I've actually seen people like post like gifs of this film about this guy going crazy. He puts like mind makeup and everything, and he's like a man who's obsessed with movies, not just horror movies, obsessed with like crime noir, and he's trying to literally create like real kills <laughs> in real life based off the movies he watches. So it was very bizarre but interesting and it felt like a fever dream type film but really interesting that sounds cool yeah it was an interesting pairing I was like this is cool i guess and I, they make references to the, the other movie the white heat like he, he talks about that movie so i felt like oh that's your connection here a little bit cool so that's my last four nice yeah yeah i forgot to shout out johnny thank you again to him for coming on last week if you haven't listened to our friday the 13th episode yet it was me johnny and angelo and we go through the whole franchise it is 
long, but it is a lot of fun and it's um, uh, a really great episode. So please listen to that. And thanks again to Johnny for coming on. He is at Johnny Coffee on Instagram and then follow Turbo Sleepover as well. Turbo we learned about them last week. Yeah. So thank you to him and, and go support him and, and follow him. And uh, he's doing a ton of cool stuff. Make sure to check him out. All right. Well, my last four. Eyes Wide Shut was my most recent. Before that, I did a uh, rom-com double feature of a couple I've been meaning to watch. I watched Long Shot and No Hard Feelings, both of which were a lot of fun. I really liked Long Shot. I, I really like Seth Rogen. And Charlize Theron is awesome in it. I kind of forgot how cool she is, but yeah. she's really great. And just to see Charlize Theron just be more laid back and having fun. And, and Seth yeah, Rogen also. that's so a funny, dude. I think he I think he makes everyone look fun around him whenever he has like a sidekick to anybody. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I liked I liked Longshot a lot. And yeah, she was awesome. Seth Rogan's great. It was just a, another solid Seth Rogan and whoever his writing partner is that he does all those oh, movies Evan Goldberg. with. Yeah, Evan Goldberg movie. No Hard Feelings was crazy. It was a little it reminded me of like the the like early 2000s like uh Jason Siegel and like Judd Apatow stuff where it was still just kind of dumb fun movies but mm-hmm. trying to have heart it was a little bit on the weird side for me, but I did I did enjoy it. You had thoughts on it though. Oh no, yeah, no, I, I liked it too. And it was it was there were times that man, this is really out there at times, but they're having fun. At least like it's good to see Jennifer Lawrence like Ashley. I'm I'm happy she's doing a little more comedy. I think she could do a yeah. little more like comedic roles after. Just not to be that raunchy, but she, she has that like vibe, <laughs> yeah. right? I feel like. She could keep working at it. I think she'll be great because she has some yeah. good moments in the movie. And somewhere I'm like, whoa, she really goes out there in like especially that beach scene. There is there is a scene that is kind of insane that you should check out. It's worth it's worth it's an interesting movie. Thank you, my little brother Josh, for recommending it and telling me. He's like, there's just there's a one scene you have to see, and it, it is. <laughs> There is one scene you have to see. <laughs> You're like, dang, yeah, Jennifer all right. Lawrence went for it. And it was, you know, it was it was great. It's great seeing Jennifer Lawrence in general again. I feel like she's she's been kind of off the grid for a while, but I, I like her a lot. After that, I watched Sleepaway Camp, which was my last movie of Halloween. And it was cool. It, I didn't like it, honestly. It was like pretty annoying. But there was some really fun stuff. There's a really crazy twist. I, I was kind of inspired to watch it because it sounded like very similar to Friday the 13th, which, you know, obviously we just spent a lot of time watching and thinking about and talking about. And so it was interesting seeing another like early 80s slasher movie at a camp also just highlighted how good Friday the 13th is compared. But it, it, it was it was fun. And there, the the twist in the, the main storyline had a payoff that was interesting. So it's not it's worth watching, but it is it is crazy. Yeah. I know we spoil every movie, but that one really was like, oh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Psycho vibes, Friday the 13th vibes. So it's a lot of fun. But I did. Yeah, I did enjoy it. Overall filmmaking, much, much less interesting to me than what friday the 13th was and and kind of yeah boosted it up in my in my opinion a little bit comparing the two which that's not fair maybe but i feel like it was a ripoff of friday the 13th oh yeah i want to say that came out yes, after. Like, i want to say that was like three years after another one of the, the waves that inspired yeah. a lot of the knockoffs just with its own weird bizarre twist that's the only difference but the, the movie is very similar to because you're at another camp it's a killer it's like come on <laughs> yeah. this is totally and it's also in pov too it's like the original like now i'm thinking about it because like 
yeah i saw that years ago i remember just on my own too i just like oh i've heard about this and my cousin back then on his myspace had that as like his favorite movie and he always had that picture of the girl's face right before it shows like her reveal <laughs> so i never understood it and then i just remember like oh my cousin like that's on his favorite movies but i think it was just for that sick joke about like seeing <laughs> i can't say it on here so <laughs> so that was my last four it was a good one and then eyes wide shut What's the big mystery? Bill, I have seen one or two things in my life. Never anything like this. Look, women don't. They basically just don't think like that. Men have to stick it in every place they can, but for women, women, it is just about security and commitment and whatever the fuck else. If you men only knew. Suppose I said that all of that was fake. I've already talked about this, but I'm nervous to talk about this one. Talking about a Kubrick movie is a little bit scary because they're so good and trying to analyze them always feels like you're in over your head. So I'm going to try just really to talk, you know, observations, different, you know, facts about the movie and the making of it. We get into conspiracy theories about things related to the movie, which is really fun. But it's going to, you know, the first time I've been a little nervous. I knew eventually we'd probably do a Kubrick movie. So I'm I'm, I'm nervous about it. But this is a fun one because there's a lot to talk about. It's really open-ended. So there's just a lot of fun theories to explore. Fidelio first, by the way. <laughs> if you wish. <laughs> Exactly. And that's me also confirming. I have to agree. Like, this is going to be an interesting conversation because I have no idea, like, where to begin with this movie and where. Yeah. Like, because just like the characters, you know, we're, we're here, we're having fun, but we're going to stumble into some some dark paths and uh, end up in a, a bit here. So I'm excited to get yeah. into this this movie because it's been in my brain for so long. Like it's it's one of even as a kid, I remember like seeing a TV spot, you know, because when you're watching sports with your dad, they'll show any new movie spot, whether it's a kid's movie or an R-rated film. I just remember snippets of a close ups of Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman having sex. And then it just it just said Cruise Kidman. I think it's like Kubrick. I don't know who that was at the time, but it said. I think so. The poster has all three names kind of stacked like that. Yeah, and it was really. So I bet they did. Yeah, I remember it was like being quick, erotic, and I think my mom tried to close my eyes, but it was just such a fast. It was <laughs> yeah, a fast commercial that just did by, and I was like, it just I remember left an impact and seeing billboards around, just like her looking at the camera when he's macking on her, always gave me this haunting. With the cool frame. I mean, this is a weird confession, but Nicole Kidman was one of my first celebrity crushes. So like, nice. even seeing her like that as a kid was something haunting though oh, yeah. there was something still like uh i don't know if i should be excited or... exactly like it still. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know i'm just you know because yeah. i just knew her from batman forever so that was the only reason i knew nicole kidman so like seeing those ads and her just leaving me like ooh, this is something doesn't feel right about this but i never thought about it again until i got older and, and discovered stanley kubrick and i remember being like oh he did that one movie because no one talked about it around my circle obviously i was a kid so not even my parents brought it up or anything they're not going to talk to me about right. oh a first grader about eyes wide shut so as i discovered it as i got older there were just something about it that like 
okay, I, I don't know what I just watched, but I'm going to like just let that settle in. I don't have to fully think about it, but I just still keep thinking about it. I just think about like the world we live in and how like how much there's possible darkness that's literally in the shadows that, that I don't know. There's something that, that was depicted in the film that just felt so real and it's just so like yeah. someone experienced this or are we even in a real you know orgy right now you know there's just something about it you know which we'll get into but there's an impact you get the more you watch it i feel like and there's new layers you discover in this movie yeah but this is this is one that is fun to watch after the exorcist because i feel like these both are really great movies at creating a sense like we talked about this on the exorcist episode but like a sense an atmosphere of like evil all around you so even when there's nothing happening and it's just there's still this like great sense that there's like danger around and you're still feeling the anxiety of a scary movie but it's all done so well and just like the world's built so well and the subconscious you know ability to manipulate us with music and camera angles and creative editing that really messes with your sense of time perception can can like create such a impact like i feel like a racer head is another movie that has had that kind of impact on me where i watched it and i wasn't sure if i liked it even that much and then could never stop thinking about it i'm reminded of it all the time watching other movies a really fun movie watch it one time and i think you'll probably think about it for years even if you didn't like it <laughs> i agree man and i'm happy you brought the comparison to the exorcist because that's another movie that i've only seen a few times in my life but it's always made an impact on yeah. me and i cannot stop thinking about moments and the chillingness of both films both films are eerie both they're wonderfully atmospheric also yes both have a wonderful city vibes but also like yeah. the chilling factor of like there is something evil still lurking in these streets you know and true from upon a first viewing or second viewing and it stays with you that's just saying something you know i feel like that's like you know how how art should be you know how, how like yeah good movies should should be you may not get it the first time but it just you think about it you, you especially if there's a moment that really like you can't stop thinking about and both exorcist and eyes wide shut have moments where like i can't stop thinking about certain moments certain shots and just like that eerie feeling of like being in a place you shouldn't be in you know and you know yeah. we've all had those experiences of places like oh i shouldn't be here this is kind of creepy and they, they really yeah. bring that feeling to to this movie especially as much shut it's almost a movie that i felt like yeah yeah we're not supposed to be watching this movie there's just something scary about it that's and haunting you know it's that feeling like being watched when you're in an empty room and i'm in danger yeah. kind of instinct that we have like kubrick especially i can say with confidence like was a master like manipulator of those kind of like base human fears and desires yeah another guy too that knows how to like really document something real or like a feeling that like especially with his other films and i, I mean i know this is one of his older ones but clockwork orange also has that like feeling where it, like there are times i'm like man i'm not supposed to be watching this girl get violated yeah. by all these guys because i remember seeing that when i was a little too young maybe like early high school and because i because <laughs> yeah. i just people reference it people wear t-shirts so i was like i gotta see this oh, yeah. and because I, I i don't think i think the only kubrick movie prior to that i saw was the shining and that's probably gonna only yeah. think of because that's also just another iconic movie that people like will say oh it's like one of the best horror movies which it is and it's a great and it's awesome and but like comparing Eyes Wide Shut to Clockwork Orange, both just have those moments of like, oh yeah, I think I shouldn't be watching this. It just feels too real. I don't watch Clockwork that that often anymore because it's just so brutal. Like I really love it. Yeah. But 
yeah, it's just it's brutal, man. It's a tough one. I agree, man. And even eyes wide shut. But but something about this movie, I like to adventure into this dark force world, you know. And I guess because yeah, you have Tom Cruise just being a normal guy stumbling into high power things because of this connection with people yeah. and the nature of the the way of like everybody has sexual desires is leading him to all these like paths you know like i don't even know where to begin with that because it's well yeah so if you haven't seen eyes wide shut this is a 1999 film stanley kubrick wrote and directed so tom cruise and nicole kidman are a married couple they are kind of in a not a dead relationship but they have a kid and it seems like they they don't really connect at all anymore everything seems very superficial at the beginning they're kind of just going through life in a dream you could say with their eyes wide shut you know they go to a party where they're both kind of seduced and there's a bunch of weird stuff it's a weird party and there's christmas lights everywhere that are incredibly cool and dreamy and beautiful and nicole kidman is seduced by some some attractive old like european guy don't you think one of the charms of marriage is that it makes deception a necessity for both parties? <laughs> May I ask why a beautiful woman who could have any man in this room wants to be married? Why wouldn't she? Tom Cruise is, is being seduced by two ladies, uh, two young models, and they're both like kind of in a just like a dreamy haze, like almost like they've been drugged somehow. <laughs> ladies, where exactly are we going? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> where the rainbow ends. Where the rainbow ends. Don't you want to go where the rainbow ends? Well, now that <laughs> depends where that is. Well, let's find out. Excuse me, ladies. Sorry, Dr. Harper. Sorry to interrupt. I wonder if you could come with me for a moment. And nothing ends up happening, but they both kind of admit to each other that night. Nicole Kidman gets out the hobby weed. Shout out to Nope. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, smokes it with Tom Cruise. They end up talking about how they both kind of had these little flirtations at the party. Mm. Tom Cruise is kind of being a little braggadocious and condescending to Nicole Kidman. That's basically the scene that spirals. But that that scene is incredible. I don't know if I want to walk through it exactly, but it's 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 really like a trance. Like I couldn't, it was a really fun experience watching it this time. That what you're saying is that the only reason you wouldn't fuck those two models is out of consideration for me. Not because you really wouldn't want to. It's just, relax, Alice. This pot is making you aggressive. No, it's not the pot, it's you. Why can't you ever give me a straight fucking answer? I was under the impression that's what I was doing. I don't even know what we're arguing about here. I'm not arguing. I'm just trying to find out where you're coming from where I'm coming from. I'll ask you, how long do you think that scene was? The, the scene where they smoke weed and then get into the big fight, basically, that kicks the movie off. That's got to be like under 20 minutes, I want to say. That, that that felt like it went long, but it's but it really is the crucial key to the film of what's going to send them on right. their journeys. And especially Tom Cruise is the guy we mainly follow in this film and see from all his yeah. perspective, actually. So I, I, I think that, yeah, that sequence was really long, but it was very like, 
well acted for a real and especially it worked that they were a real married couple at the time so like oh yeah their emotions oh, yeah. Um, both being passionate but also hateful is just very real there's something that's just so natural about it and i mean i, I know they're not together anymore but i hope that movie wasn't the reason why they they, they split up you know because it's it's really really heavy it's for and yeah it's crazy that they both agreed yeah, to do it <laughs> Oh, yeah. So they, they did end up divorcing two years after the movie, but both of them did claim, have claimed that have nothing to do with the movie. Oh, but okay, good. I could see it. You, I, I could see why you would never admit it, it yeah. did, but this blows Tom Cruise's mind. Like, he cannot handle this fact. Like, he really thought he was, like, the only thing she was into ever, all the time. And literally in the conversation, he's like, women do want security. Like, women just want a guy to take care of them and like the men have to like procreate and conquer and stuff. And that's kind of like, I think the first time she gets triggered, but basically she starts like rubbing her sexuality in his face and, and really just like being like, Oh, you really thought I was just this like sweet little housewife sitting at home waiting for you, just like daydreaming about you all day mm -hmm. and like loving things. Like, like there's a lot of scenes of her at home with the kid and, and just like, eating cereal and watching the news on a little tv mm. and then it cuts to him at work and he's like have my car ready by 5 30 please get me a coffee and even at work he has all these ladies taking care of him and then she's just sitting around waiting for him to get home to take care of him and you can really just like oh this guy is really just like riding on on these women all day and like really just like expects them to be serving him yeah look women don't they basically just don't think like that. Millions of years of evolution, right? Right? Men have to stick it in every place they can, but for women, women it is just about security and commitment and whatever the fuck else. A little oversimplified, Alice, but yes, something like that. If you men only knew. I'll tell you what I do know is you got a little stone tonight. You've been trying to pick a fight with me, and now you're trying to make me jealous. But you're not the jealous type, are you? No, I'm not. You've never been jealous about me, have you? No, I haven't. And why haven't you ever been jealous about me? Well, I don't know, Alice. Maybe because you're my wife. Maybe because you're the mother of my child, and I know you would never be unfaithful to me. So they, they get into the big fight under 15 minutes long. Oh, I actually okay. did a, a timer. You you were right on. I thought it was only like five minutes, but just felt longer because it's such a so it's if it's a scene, the way it's edited, it's broken up into like three parts. And it, it feels like to me, at least it felt like the editing was creating a sense that a lot of time was passing the way it was cut. But then. We were seeing it in real time, though. So there was like this illusion that stuff had happened in between certain cuts, but really nothing had. And so the scene like grows in your mind because it's the same thing with like a montage where you're trying to create a sense of like months passing to move the movie forward. You know, you can use those tricks, but you're not actually passing time that way. But there's basically like three parts to it. The first three minutes is when they're in bed together smoking and it's like kind of peaceful and Tom Cruise is in, in control and his world is safe. And then I think it's the moment where he says, 
that she only wants to be safe with him. She gets up and starts pacing, and that's when she's trying to understand exactly what she thinks of him, what he thinks of her. And she's trying to, like, question him and, like, prod a little bit more and, like, wait a minute, you think this? And then the last seven minutes is when she's sitting at the window just, like, monologuing at him, and he's just kind of frozen because he's, like, his brain's broken at that point, and she's just, like unloading on him and like he's already lost and like he he doesn't he's he gets it now that he has no idea mm. but she like keeps going and describes her fantasy with a random like bellhop they saw on vacation oh, or a luggage the naval, or naval officer that was at naval officer who was yeah, with yeah. the bellhop yeah who she saw at the hotel they were at some summer and i thought if he wanted me even if it was only one night I was ready to give up everything you Helena my whole fucking future everything sitting under the window she describes very vividly her sexual fantasy that she had about this guy and this dream she had about relationships and that's the reoccurring nightmare that will haunt tom cruise the rest of this movie so that's when it's planted in his brain so like you said a key key moment his arc really Mm -hmm. but that scene is 15 minutes it feels like it lasts an hour to me in a great way I think of everything last night, like the ceremony, the mass ceremony is like such an iconic moment. But I think, and this scene is too, especially this rewatch, that was a scene that became like every other scene was resting on that scene. The the core themes of the movie are all right there. That scene is important because that's what that what pivots and begins the nightmare of this film. Because everything before that really is just like a facade. Like everything just feels like surface level. Like oh, yeah, this is my, that's, he's a married man. She's married to him, and they go to a party, you know, and they have like soulless sex with each other. When he's like filling her up in the mirror, yeah, and it's just like it just feels so like gross, kind of. And also, this movie opens with a shot of Nicole Kidman's bare bottom bare ass Mm -hmm. and i think that really drives home the point of how she's viewed at the beginning of the movie as a sexual object yeah and i think we see her naked like four or five times and like one of the times we see her naked tom cruise is feeling her up and trying to have sex with her and she looks like almost like a lifeless victim in the mirror she is the reason of what the movie is of what's going to send this character through this journey and also that that opening symbolizes her, her naked is all the sexual desires of us men or women again this shot also from a perspective like are we supposed to be looking at her in dress too because even that's yeah. like almost like a guy hiding in a closet kind of kind of look you know something peeping tommy about that opening yeah again only Kubrick can make sexual stuff sometimes unsettling too you know and i talked about that with clockwork orange that movie too is the sexual nature is just like off-putting in that film and so is this film at times so no i think i think he's definitely a successor to hitchcock in that he really gets into the psychology of sex more than the fun movie version of sex yeah. that a lot of movies exploit yeah where it's very it's very loaded like you're not just going to be like oh nice nicole kidman's naked i know like it's all going to be very like 
it should be like introspective and and by the end of the movie you're like oh yeah was i enjoying seeing her naked at the beginning of the movie like Mm -hmm. am i also a creep like everybody in this movie turned out to be other than nicole kidman kind of which that's i don't think the point is that they're creeps but i think it plays on your expectations and like what a movie is even where it's like sexuality is fun and that's part of the selling point of a movie right Right. what if it flips on you because also you know sexuality is deeply psychological and you know loaded very loaded yes it is man and and especially like the the nature of that and and the way like especially a woman could like implant something into us men you know like just even a few words can just destroy us and for a night which is what happens to our our protagonist this film yeah man like literally after their their crazy intense talk you know especially like yeah he's broken like it's it's pretty hilarious actually just how because all she does is admit she had like a sex dream which like yeah in the scene we see how intense it is like they do a good job of showing like tom cruise's experience yeah um, like i said an amazing scene but really all she's doing is saying oh i had well i felt like uh, attracted to other men and like so it's like that shouldn't be that crazy to you but yeah and then i mean i'll get into that because that that that's uh, that part's disturbing actually and, and rough but the the thing too that's established in the opening with like the party scene, you know, with the that Englishman trying to hit on her while they're she's they're dancing and he's really yeah. trying to go for it and she's saying I'm married and she's play, being like flirty, you know, she's not being too rude, she's being polite, yeah, maybe on the politer side of polite, but yeah, never crossing a line, yeah, or I don't know, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Tom Cruise wants to go see his buddy who who also we'll talk about later, who's the jazz pianist at the at the party, and then he's he yeah. just goes to see him to say hi and she and now there goes Nicole Kidman alone waiting for him, but he gets pulled because there's these two girls were patients of his i want to say that were flirting with him and he's just like ah oh, shoot okay he's being nice too because you know he's trying to be grateful for all the people he knows you know you, you get it you get yeah. what, why he's being nice but just like the timing and everything is creating all this like which which pays off for that that bedroom scene where they talk because it's like oh you're off with those girls and then you know and he's like oh i saw you dancing with that guy and then it's, it yeah, creates this yeah. misunderstanding especially when even what made it worse too is that he had to go check because his uh, friend said oh yes yeah, had someone I was gonna say, and he, yeah. Yeah, and he couldn't talk to her about what really happened so it does sound like he's lying and that he yeah. did go cheat on her when we, yeah. and <laughs> to be fair he would have too because he was he was walking away and talking about doing fun That's things true. upstairs with them that is true where only he, he only got pulled away because somebody came to get him for help with the girl upstairs mm. like you're saying where nicole kidman stopped to be on her own volition yeah so like his his crime was worse because his flirting was open-ended where hers was like okay we're dancing at the ball like i'm not gonna actually do anything like yes witnesses yeah you're clearly like a host it seems like or a significant person at the party so i'm being polite yeah you know yeah but it's nice to like when especially when rewatching when you know what's going to happen wow all the clues are in the beginning and especially his his friend that, that's the host of the party you know is the one with his og girl but that already sets up like wow he takes him away from his wife and it already is planting this dark world already or like this girl's ODing, even though he's just like okay i get it we're at yeah. a party you know he's just trying to be brushing us off being also a friend he's not going to be like oh you're doing illegal stuff you know he's still, he's still trying to be helpful yeah. and be a good pal and, and i almost feel like he's testing him in that scene so 
So the the guy who's throwing the party is like, I don't think we ever find out exactly what he does, but he's a very, seems to be very influential, very well off. He has a big, beautiful house, you know, not all these rich, famous friends. Yeah. You know. Shout out to Sandy Pollock. Awesome performance. He's so creepy in this movie. I love him. But he he calls Tom Cruise upstairs because a girl, and this is in a, turns out to be a very important character, Odeed in his bathroom, mm-hmm. and Tom Cruise is coming up to check on her, and that's why he gets pulled away from the two girls that were hitting on him, mm-hmm. but where he actually was when his wife thought he was cheating on her. And so he helps the girl. Turns out she's okay, but it, it, it is a, that is a weird scene because he also like wants to kick her out immediately. And Tom Cruise is like, let her stay here for an hour and then give her a ride home. And you can just tell he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Like as long as she's not going to die right now, she's out of here. Well, Victor, um, I think I can leave the rest to you. Is it okay if I get some clothes on her and get her out of here? Uh, no, I'd, uh, I'd keep her here for another hour. Another hour? And then I'd, I'd have someone take her home. Okay. Okay. Good night, man. Seems like a kind of nothing thing. Like I said, it kind of seems like he, maybe he's testing him out to see if he's trustworthy for shady doctor needs you know maybe it was establishing a secret relationship and testing him which you know tom cruise if that was the case failed big time throughout the movie this girl becomes really important because she's gonna re she's gonna come up again throughout the movie she's gonna be for sure part of the end of the movie and become like critical to that and is important at the party scene where Tom Cruise gets caught sneaking into this party. So this movie's kind of broken into like three parts. Like you have the first section where life is normal and then they have smoke weed and go to the party mm-hmm. and it breaks. The next section, and this is crazy, this all happens in one night, which mm-hmm. I didn't really realize. Like that blew my mind kind of. But he he gets called to go see a lady whose father died, who was his patient, mm-hmm. so he has to go make an appearance and this is when like the nightmare stuff starts but there's like the nightmare which is the middle third of the movie and that includes like the masked ball and includes all of his weird encounters sexual encounters where he's trying to like equal out something with his wife it seems like so Mm -hmm. he's kind of trying to get some somewhere and so he's like doing all these gross pathetic like desperate things to try to get like laid seemingly trying to like reestablish his dominance in his relationship right and then the last third is the day after he has the mass ball and this is when it's all kind of like oh was this real was this a dream was i just in like a paranoid like frenzy and like was overthinking everything yeah or or was it real and i did i like really stumble in a secret society where they kill people for finding out about them the middle act is him going down that spiral night with getting that call from the patient and the wife was it the wife right of the dead patient i can't recall if it was a wife so she she starts admitting oh i love you and she starts macking out with him yes. and that kind of yes. is already like the another seed that oh okay she, things things are gonna go crazy tonight you know that was already just a little appetizer yes. tease of uncomfortability with her, with her dead father on the bed next to them yeah 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 so her father died she admits and she has a boyfriend coming over yes. and the boyfriend literally is like on the way and she says my boyfriend's coming and then right after admits like i love you so much i've always loved you i want to be with you and starts macking on him and he kisses back for a good few seconds and then and then cuts her off and kind of stops it i love you 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 
you and love you. I don't want to go away with Carl. Marion, I don't think you realize. I do. What? Even if I'm never to see you again, I want at least to live near you. Marion, listen to me. Listen to me. You're very upset right now. And I don't think you realize what you're saying. I love you. Marion, we barely know each other. I don't think we've had a single conversation about anything except your father. I love you. She just made out with Tom Cruise and then the boyfriend walks in and it cracked me up. The boyfriend comes in and immediately goes to kiss her and you can see her like flinch and kind of like really lightly peck him yeah, because yeah, yeah. Tom Cruise's saliva would have literally still been on her mouth at that point because it's, it's like actually like 15 seconds before he comes in that she's like sloppy sloppy making out with him and i just thought that was a really hilarious little beat like it's very subtle but you can see her like flinch right before they kiss especially with with the context of what happened before that just makes it so awkward for that guy you know because he's just there you know being there for his girl and they're gonna go on they're gonna get away right that was the thing and she just keeps saying oh i don't want to get away you know i want to be with yeah you. they're moving to california i think and tom Cruise is like also weirded out like okay i did not expect you to lay this out on me but he still played it cool still a professional yep and then after he stumbles across again what is still now this is the nightmare building up where he, he meets a young prostitute just on the street she just kind of swoops up and is like hey how you doing yeah and then literally they walk like 10 steps and she's like here's my door you want to come in and it like very dreamlike like they meet and then they're at her house no cuts nothing how'd you like to have a little fun i'm, I'm sorry have a little fun I just live right down there. Would you like to come inside with me? Come inside with you? Yeah. It's a lot nicer in there than it is out here. Because right after he, he doesn't go with it with the prostitute, the phone call really does deviate. It's like, you know, what am I doing? So he actually just pays her off, like, whatever. I'm going to pay with how much it is, and then I'll leave you. But she also had this, like this vibe like wow this guy was actually really good to me i was not like violated and he still respected me so which it does pay off she he pays he pays her even though nothing really happens i think they also kiss for a minute is yeah, that true right before the phone call so he's kissed two women at this point yep. and he, there'll be a few more uh weird romantic encounters as it goes yeah encounters and they all kind of look like Nicole Kidman. They all look yes. like they could be variations of maybe younger, older, maybe just, you know, but very similar, like, looks and, like, hair color. Yes, because Nicole Kidman's hair is actually, in this movie, it's, like, blonde, like her normal hair, but kind of red mixed. And and the girls yeah. are either blonde or redhead, if you notice in the film. Yeah, like cherry blonde, blonde. Yeah, kind of on that resemb- range. Not exactly, yeah. but, but definitely, like, if you blurred your eyes, you could mistake them from a distance. There's still, like, a slight, like, interesting layered, like, you know, resemblance to her. It's almost, again, Kubrick is, is an artist. Of course, he's going to have some layers and... I'm sure that's something that has to deal with, you know, back to his wife. So they're having them kind of yeah, similar yeah. is a big, big thing in this film. It's a big motif, you know, yeah. seeing the women look the same. And especially like masks are such a big thing in this movie. Because I guess all of New York mm-hmm. in this film wasn't really shot in New York. It shot on a soundstage at Pinewood Studios. Yes, everything was built for this movie, which is insane because there's really long tracking shots of him walking through what looks to be real new york once you know you can start to see how it's a little bit 
too clean and a little bit too like the first time watching and i had no idea and it blew my mind like i literally was like oh, i have to rewatch it right now because i thought for sure that was just new york like why would you even do that and that's like that starting to get in the mystique of the movie and so then all the details become way more important because none of it's random literally everything was built for the film exactly and and it's done on purpose he specified to make it like identical to some new york streets and because this movie he wanted to have that like there's like something off so i feel like like i know people are like oh that's not really new york and why would you put him in front of a projector in that moment you know which i was also going to bring up that reminded me of clockwork oh, orange yeah. a lot it reminds me of the, the famous yeah, car scene weird projection stuff I think that's kind of another layer because I think the whole movie is supposed to look like a facade, like as if you think this is like the reality, but it really is like there's something fake about the, the society and the world. And I feel like that projection part too was meant to be like, this is also kind of dreamlike too. Is he really walking on this endless street, kind of going down this dark path as he keeps going, but there's just something mm -hmm. that's just not right. So I think it kind of adds to the unsettling factor that it's more like surreal than it really is like realistic New York, you know, it's supposed to be like... Yeah. You know, we're we're seeing things surface level, but as he as the movie goes, he's discovering there's a dark force behind this facade, literally like like a mask, almost like the city's like a mask itself. You know, as we see on the surface. Yeah, it's another mask. Yeah, which pays off because when that's so true, which leads him to the, after that girl, he sees his buddy uh, who was a who was at the also at the Nick party, Nightingale. Nick Nightingale. Which so if I could for a second on that one, so this this movie definitely continually shows us that Tom Cruise is a shitty character and his character is a shitty person. He just like does not appreciate his wife. He, he like clearly has views her as like a kind of two dimensional person and doesn't understand, you know, how complex her emotions and feelings are about things. So, so deeply unaware that it rocks his whole world. You know, he, you know, he goes on almost like a suicide sex mission almost yeah. <laughs> just to get like, just to get even with her. So this moment was another little shitty thing I noticed. So he, he meets Nick Nightingale at the first party where they both have their weird flirtations that kind of set everything off. And he invites him, Nick invites him to his jazz night at Sonata's Cafe. And Tom Cruise, on his like weird paranoiac sex mission, just happens to walk past the Sonata bar that his friend is playing at. And there's a really wide shot to show the big giant sign for the bar. Mm -hmm. Tom Cruise doesn't notice the sign, though, and doesn't go, hey, Sonata Bar, wasn't Nick playing there? I wanted to go see him. Let's see if he's playing. He notices the poster with Nick on it and then just happens to notice that and then leans in closer and reads and is reminded that he's playing. And I don't even know. He doesn't even be like, oh, my gosh, this thing. He's like, oh, Nick's playing here. Is it, oh, it happens to be right now. And so he goes in and catches the very end of his set and then has a beer with him. Who do you normally play with? Anybody, <laughs> anywhere. As a matter of fact, I got another gig later tonight. Playing somewhere else tonight? Mm. They only get started there around two. In the village? Um, believe it or not, I don't actually know the address yet. You don't? No, I, it may sound ridiculous, but uh, <laughs> it's in a different place every time, and I only get it about an hour or so before. Different place every time? So far. What's the big mystery? Hey, man, I just played the piano. <laughs> Nick, I'm sorry. Is there something I'm missing here? <laughs> I play blindfolded. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. 
I play blindfolded. <laughs> You're putting me on. No, it's the truth. And the last time, the blindfold wasn't on so well. Bill, I have seen one or two things in my life, but never, never anything like this, and never such women. And ends up stealing his password and address and potentially getting him beat up or definitely beat up but maybe killed mm. it was just like oh he literally didn't even remember this he just happened to be out on like a weird dark night of the soul thing and just happened to notice it like but still gets kind of credit for being a cool friend showing up to support his his old buddy from college you know mm. but it wasn't that at all he literally was being so selfish everything that led him to that was selfish none of it was actually with the intent of being a good friend but then totally uses him too and just like pressures him into giving up all this stuff and putting his job in jeopardy for sure and potentially his life yeah and especially so he's already kind of warning him like nah this is the thing like, you can't go to but he's he was really like grinding like come on man like give, give me the give me the code or whatever you know give already got the password you just gotta give me the address yeah. like they'll never know and it's like you don't think they have unique passwords for the band yeah like come on that's like what i always think like i bet fidelio wasn't even like the guest password i bet it was like the help password what is this it's the name of a beethoven opera isn't it <laughs> nick it's the password the password yeah, look, I'm I'm really sorry to do this to you, Bill. I mean, I I, I gotta get going. I gotta I gotta go. Nick, you know there is no way on earth that you're going to leave here tonight without taking me with you. Oh, come on, buddy, give me a break. Nick, I tell you what, I've already got the password. Just give me the address, and I'll go there by myself, and there won't be any connection between us whatsoever. Yeah, so that's where he gets the famous password, Fidelio. He reads it off of the napkin uh, when Nick gets his phone call. And Nick, he's not perfect either. He's bragging. So he's the one who opened the door for Tom Cruise to get his foot in. You yeah. know, and uh, So it is kind of Nick's fault for bragging about all the hot women he saw. And I was, and you brought up a good point that Tom Cruise really is, like, his character is, all these things, bad things happen because of him. He's, it's all because he's the guy that's, like, pressuring his way through things and buying his way oh, yeah. through things. But it's costing people's lives the way he's, kind of going about it and just because of the insecurities is leading him to like this this really just like dude what are you doing man just go home like just just chill you know don't don't force people to bring to us something you shouldn't be at which he learns his lesson as as the movie continues he he steals nick's info about the the event and then he needs a costume that's like the last big hang-up he thinks he has is needing a costume and a mask for the party so he, again, uses his money to barge into a person, a working class person's life and forces them to get out of bed. And this guy also turns out to be a scumbag, but but still 
Tom Cruise doesn't know that, and he's using his money. And again, he flashes his thing saying, oh, I'm a doctor. Mm. This is another weird kind of, I think, a Nicole Kidman plant kind of, another weird, because she's also got the hair color. It's just like almost like a young Nicole Kidman as like a, a child, basically. Yeah. And so, so there's this Russian guy who's got the costume shop, and, and Tom Cruise is just trying to get a black cloak and a mask to go to this party. And then they happen to stumble on this guy's apparent apparently his daughter yeah. who's like 13 or something maybe yeah and, really young uh, in a room with two asian guys doing you know so yeah the, the russian guy pretends to be really appalled and mad and stuff but the girl the the interesting part or not the relevant part is that she hugs tom cruise and like kind of hides behind him and is like basically also trying to prostitute herself to him which the dad pretends not to notice but it's just like such another just like weird like mm-hmm. it's very obvious what's happening but everybody's pretending like it's not happening and tom cruise is just kind of there being like what is going on yeah like, you guys with me? like i know like you said you didn't know yeah so like you have his daughter in bikini with two guys out of that room like that's kind of uh, suspicious <laughs> beyond oh, suspicious majorly, majorly. <laughs> yeah and then yeah later in the movie we'll see them again with the daughter so clearly the dad knew what was happening and hints to a cd underground of child prostitution and specifically you know this guy doing that this is preposterous the young lady invited us here couldn't you see she is deranged doctor i'm sorry to keep you waiting gentlemen this is now a police matter you will please stay here until i return I'm afraid that's out of the question. Doctor, um, sorry, what color did you say? Black? Black. Gentlemen, please, have the goodness to be quiet for the moment! Couldn't you see I tried to serve my customer? Sorry. And you, little whore, go to bed at once, you depraved creature. I deal with you as soon as I serve the gentleman. So he gets the mask, he gets the the coat, cloak, he goes to the ball, he leaves his taxi outside. He also doesn't wear his mask and cloak when he's coming up to the ball, walking up. He, and he not even until he's inside does he put it on. Yeah. I'm like, no way. Everybody's wearing that thing the whole time, dude. I like know. that's you, how could you be so naive? Like you're I know. like people saw your face, dude. Like you're already no one would let their face be seen at this party. Like that's <laughs> like the whole point. There's always plausible deniability. It's something I didn't catch the first time because you don't know what's going on. But rewatching, it's become like actually like comical to me. Like it's hilarious when he's like going up to the party because mm-hmm. of just how obvious it is. Like he sticks out like a sore thumb once you know more context of what this is and stuff. It's not subtle, not subtle at all. Like oh, he's so arrogant, man. It's hilarious. And it's like, dude, like you're not creeped out by a whole bunch of people wearing costumes already coming in. It reminded me of a uh, Midsommar in that way, where it's like the kids going to this mm. like fun like Coachella festival thing, where they're like, we're just gonna smoke weed and do mushrooms, and it's gonna be fucking awesome, bro. Like, <laughs> Or they're gonna be sweet, hot Swedish chicks. Yeah. Very similar kind of feel. Like, oh, you don't even know, like how how deep you're getting into it right now. Like, it's like he just wants to party. He just wants to be with some babes. But it's not like the party he he thought he was coming into. You know, or thinking it's gonna be. Well, and like I feel like too, it's like he views this as like the ultimate like club where it's like oh okay now if i'm a part of this 
I'll be a, a real like powerful man. Like, like everything's about like power dynamics to him. Like yeah. he lost in his mind, he lost like dominance with his wife that he thought he had. And so it's the same thing here where he's trying to have like this social dominance where he's like, well, you know, okay, I'm going to force my way into this like elite secret club. Yeah. And again, with like him, like looking down on other people, like again, Nick, the person he's using is like, actually somebody who's like labor for these like rich elite people yeah and again the labor gets like screwed over by this guy trying to like climb up the ladder over him yeah and especially his buddy nick is blindfolded he's he mentions that like he doesn't even see the parties he only is blindfolded but they said there are times that he's able to peek through the blinds and like ooh, like yeah and found it very fascinating naked woman and just figured it was some fun sex party even he doesn't know he, he's seeing more than what he knows you know and, and it's totally screwing it up for both of them in this this the sequence yeah tom cruise just really is such like a bad person in this movie like he really he really is it's it's like pretty crazy like everything he does it, like fuck somebody else over it's pretty hilarious actually <laughs> good evening sir good evening password sir for daily thank you sir So, so Tom Cruise gets to explore a little bit and he's walking around seeing all the fun stuff happening. And then there's a big ceremony finally. And that's, this is the iconic scene. This is that awesome song. It's like my, one of my favorite movie songs ever. It's actually, uh, wasn't made for the movie. It was a track previously made that Kubrick used for the movie. He just liked it a lot, but it's, it's a very haunting, like, um, organ, which Nick Nightingale's playing at this point and chanting the chanting is in reverse it's actually a religious like Christian chant in reverse like which I thought was interesting and like hints maybe it's some satanic undertones to the movie with this with this uh, cult stuff occult stuff basically all the girls there's all these naked girls dancing with the red cloak red cloak you know is pretty much agreed to be the leader of this cult and the girls do a big dance and this chant and it's really amazing and hypnotic and beautiful it's like the most iconic images of the cold stuff comes from this moment and then one of the girls they all break off and pick partners to basically go have relations with and mm. one of them picks tom cruise this is where he finds out that he is not as well undercover at all and basically everybody knows what's going on yeah. the girl tries to warn him and we don't know exactly why she's trying to help i'm not sure what you think you're doing you don't belong here. I'm sorry, but I think you've mistaken me for someone else. Please, don't be foolish. You must go now. Who are you? It doesn't matter who I am. You are in great danger. And you must get away while there's still a chance. Interesting thing, and this is going to get a little funny to talk about, but the very first scene with the prostitute who OD'd, there's this shot from the ground 
where Tom Cruise is looking over her, talking to her, and we see Tom Cruise's face, and almost just as large in the frame as Tom Cruise's face is the breast of the prostitute. Mm -hmm. And like the size of things in frames and movies kind of tells you how important they are. And so the fact that the breast is just as big as the star's face, who really is the focus of the frame the first time, you're like, oh, it's a boob. Like he wants to show a boob, that's why. But my, my wife was like, oh, wow, you know, look, he's really, that's like the boobs is huge. Like like how big it is in the frame. And I was like, yeah, that is interesting. And like, they're showing it the whole time. (laughs) Yeah, that is interesting. So then he has saved, this woman tries to warn him, risking her own safety, she claims. She tells him his life is in danger. She has a mask, so you can't see her face. She won't tell him who she is. The boob becomes important because the boob is the one thing that you have in all three parts of the movie to identify her. And it's the way you can be sure that she's the girl in the middle who saves him. Mm. I think it's not an accident that her breast is shown so prominently in that first scene where Mm. she's in and the whole scene, her, her breasts and body are in. And again, I think it's establishing how women are viewed. It's establishing that this is viewed just like as a naked, like they don't care about her. They still want her to die at the party, you know, really. Yeah. But, But it becomes important in like, understanding the like her character's arc because the only way to know for sure she's the woman who saves him which plays into the end so spoiler she gets killed or she dies she dies Mm -hmm. and as far as we know it's an od but there's obviously big question marks but i do actually think seeing her boob and recognizing it is meant to be how we know the character arc and it is like it is giving us a clue as to what's going on because in that where it's never confirmed like it kind of is but we can't trust the guy at the end that's why i was saying that in the beginning that that opening scene with him dealing with that girl was crucial because again yes and that's a good observation because like yes looking at her breasts it's almost significant to like when you see that girl that's trying to help him it's a way to identify her when she has a mask on yes that's the best way there that's the point i'm trying to make it becomes a key way of identifying her throughout the movie because we each time she's in a scene that's the one constant we have yes is her breasts <laughs> exactly and it, it's just a body part just as a body part <laughs> i know the the voice is different and I, I always sometimes think it's the girl the prostitute that he saw too i always get them like kind of mixed up i still don't know for sure i mean it is kind of confirmed at the end that's why i think the breasts if we trust the guy at the if end trusts, if we trust Sidney paul yeah. when he finally supposedly tells us what's going on but again there's lots of inconsistencies it toys with you still and with his explanation so the explanation that matters and the reason this girl matters matters is so we get to this big pivotal moment she tries to warn tom cruise he doesn't listen he continues walking around this is the famous orgy scene where he is walking through the party and all the people are just banging everywhere (laughs) this is also the famous scene where the studio after kubrick died adds added cgi hooded figures to block the sex because they thought it was too graphic fairly controversial and it is pretty noticeable once you know Uh, it bothered me this time because you could tell the fake hoodies when you saw them like it didn't look like a person standing it looked like a a thing hanging there interested on it because you guys i read something about that and i read it after the fact so me watching it like on this rewatch i wasn't even noticing that there was something cg but i read i read something That's about good. that actually and i didn't notice it before i knew admittedly but it is it is like you know every time there's somebody having sex there just happens to be a, a black hoodie facing us and the funny thing is most of the scenes nobody's wearing hoodies at that point because they're all naked yeah so it's like and i get there's people who just want to watch maybe but <laughs> <laughs> It was a loud place. Finally, he 
gets called in to the main hall again. And this time everybody's there set up again, waiting for him. And, and what, what happens in between? Is it just him walking around looking at all the orgies that happens between this? Or does he ever go off with somebody and talk again? It kind of balances because in the beginning, he had that girl saying, turn back now, you know, like as he right. kind of enters. And then he keeps walking around. He's like, I'm fine. He's watching. Oh, oh it's the taxi. They come They come to tell him that the, the taxi. taxi. He's like, are you, the, are you the guy with the taxi? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, well, your driver's at the door demanding to see you. And it's like, oh, dude, uh, how I embarrassing. Know. I know. It's like your mom coming to the sleep over to tell you to brush your teeth or something excuse me sir are you the gentleman with the taxi waiting for him yes your driver's at the front door and would urgently like a word with you and so that's the moment so they call him back into the main room and then there everybody's waiting for him red mask is sitting in a big chair <sighs> scariest and moment everybody <laughs> all the masks are staring at him it's horrifying they call him into the middle of the room yeah they demask him and the big moment what's the password fidelio mm. okay but what's the door password and he says he doesn't know and that's what exposes him finally you know the final thing but may i ask what is the password for the house The password for the house. Yes. I'm sorry, I... I... I seem to have... forgotten it. That's unfortunate. Because here, it doesn't matter whether you have forgotten it or if you never knew it. You will kindly remove your mask. Make him take off the mask, shame him. There's a specific mask that he's seen staring at him a lot throughout the night, which I believe is Sidney Pollock's character. Uh huh. Um, I, I think so. I assume. I think so. I think it's pretty safe to say he is told to disrobe. He's like, "You're busted, dude. There's severe punishments for sneaking into our party." Remove your clothes, or would you like us to do it for you? to redeem him? Yes. Are you sure you understand what you're taking upon yourself in doing this? Yes. Very well. And then the same masked lady who tried to warn him 
again steps in to save him again the poor working class lowest like the the power dynamic again and she's actually the one stepping up to save him for his idiot arrogant actions Mm. and she says i will take this man's you know punishment so he can be saved whatever you know yeah and they're everybody gasps and they're and they're like are you sure you know what this entails and she said i understand and tom cruise is like what's going to happen to the girl and she's like any promises made here will be enacted like no promise here can be broken and then they kick tom cruise out he goes home and this has all been one night. This 40 minutes of us explaining this has been one night <laughs> since he left his wife in their fight mid-sentence, just walked out on their fight. So Nicole Kidman is now sleeping at home, and she wakes up when he gets home. And immediately, she starts telling him about a horrible nightmare she had. He, uh, he was kissing me. And then... Then we were making love. (sighs) Then there were all these other people around us. Hundreds of them everywhere. Everyone was fucking. (laughs) And then I... (laughs) I was fucking other men. His, his weird dream night is also bookended by his wife admitting these weird, crazy, like, sexual, like, subconscious Freudian desires. And then that kind of ends the dream act, right? And her dream is literally, yeah, exactly describing what he just kind of went through, seeing a whole bunch of people, like, having sex in front. But as if she was there, which I always wonder, is she at the part, is she part of the sex That's cult? What I, like, there's hints that she's involved somehow. Maybe he's also tripping, thinking that she's saying that, like, almost like as if he's so guilty and nervous to be in this kind of like this you know place he shouldn't have been at this party he shouldn't have seen you know it's almost like he's guilty yeah. and maybe she's kind of like maybe in his it's from his this movie's from his perspective so they think this is also right. like surreal stuff so it could be that too maybe she was there or maybe he's also just like over everything's just over exaggerated in his eyes now where things are now more like he's only constantly thinking about this party now and everything has changed after being there. yeah but still it is strange of her like yeah explaining like all these men and having to be undressed which he was asked to be undressed just such like an a, hour ago such a cool such a coincidence it's just a very big coincidence and like i don't know how she could have been at the party but she one thing that it does connect uh, reminds me of in the movie the beginning scene when she's dancing with the english guy the old english yep, guy yeah. who i also assume is the leader of the occult red coat i was gonna I say i've always kind of thought he was i have no proof really but 
I just assumed. I was gonna say real quick that sometimes their mask kind of resembles like even the person, like Tom Cruise's mask. I feel like there's a resemblance. I, that's why I say Sidney Pollock because there's something structured with that that bird mask he has. Like it kind of has like it's kind of a big face, yeah, kind of wide, yeah. And then and then the guy, the red coat, his face kind of looks like the English guy a little bit. And he's also an English kind of voice dude, even though he's not the same actor I looked up. But if you're gonna layer this into the arts and the you know metaphors of the film that guy could be also symbolizing the guy that she was trying to convince her to like sleep with him and like pretty much you're so sexy like what you should be and you know with many men she said like many men would be after you you know so there's also these creepy hints that like maybe this guy's also like the secret leader that's because he's very like persuasive you know yes that's another very like entrancing scene where you just get kind of locked in to what's happening i think i have to go and find my husband now Oh, but I'm sure he'll be all right on his own a little longer. Yes. But will I? Of course you will. No. No, no, no. I, I, I really have to go. I have to go. You don't, you know. Yes, I do. Alice, I must see you again. That's impossible. Why? Because I'm married. The next day, he kind of is trying to figure out what happened. He's still trying to get involved. Like he goes back to the mansion house to to kind of see what was up. And they, they bring him a note that's printed with his name on it already. So they're like, they're three steps ahead of him. Again, still just like so over his head. Like yeah. doesn't even realize just how beat he is already. <laughs> he continues to look into it. He tries to find Nick Nightingale. So he goes to a diner next to the Sonata Cafe where Nick played. He talks to a waitress. Uh, again, uses his money. He flashes his doctor badge he lies and says that he has test results for nick and that's why he needs his address yeah i also wondered if nick is cheating on his wife with the waitress because why uh, does the waitress know his address and she also was like very coy about yeah. him like if you watch she's like smirking a lot kind of fling or something yeah do you know where he's staying well uh, i don't know if you want me to give out his address it's okay, I'm a doctor. I'm, I'm actually a very old friend of his. Well, doctor, um, he'll be playing that tonight. Can it wait until then? Listen, to be perfectly honest, it's a medical matter. Some tests, and I know he'll want to know about them as soon as possible. Minor detail, but the, the that scene with the waitress is interesting. He goes to the address. There's a great scene with Alan Cumming, totally flirting with Tom Cruise, <laughs> which Tom Cruise, again, uses to his advantage, it seems. It seems like he really plays into it a little bit or uh, yeah, lets it happen. <laughs> and that guy, again, probably gets fired for telling him stuff. But he tells him Nick was dragged away and bruised, and two guys took him away like four in the morning. He came in this morning about... 4.30 a.m. with two men. Big guys. I mean, they were very well-dressed and very well-spoken, but they weren't the kind of people you'd like to fool around with, if you know what I mean. 
Anyways, um, I noticed Mr. Nightingale had a bruise on his cheek, and um, to be perfectly honest, I also thought you looked a little scared. Scared? Yes. Yes. He, he said he wanted to check out, and then he went upstairs to his room with one of the men. And the other guy stayed down in the lobby and settled his bill. And then when they came back down, Mr. Nightingale tried to pass me an envelope, but they saw it and, and took it away and said that any mail or messages for him would be collected by someone properly authorized to do so. And then they just took him off in a car. Do you have any idea where they went? No, not a clue. He finds out that the supermodel who he met at the very beginning of the movie died yeah. in an OD the next day, just happened to. He gets chased by a bald, creepy guy through the dark city streets of New York. Yeah. We can go through these scenes more, but just to get to the big finale. So finally, Sidney Pollock calls him over. He's like, come on over, man. I need to talk to you about something. Tom Cruise seems to be genuinely oblivious that Sidney Pollock is involved and that this has anything to do with that, which is hilarious. Mm. But then basically Sidney Pollock more or less tells him everything. It's all a big charade. They were just messing. It's all part of the fun of the party is to make everything super dramatic. Suppose I told you that, that everything that happened to you there, the threats, the, the, the girl's warnings, her last-minute intervention. Suppose I said that all of that was staged. That it was a kind of charade. That it was fake. Fake? Yes. Fake. Why would they do that? Why? In plain words, to scare the living shit out of you. To keep you quiet about where you'd been and what you'd seen. They said she was going to die at the party for this and that she does end up dying from parent overdose we see a news article about it uh but sydney pollock claims it didn't happen and he's like yo even you said when she od'd at the beginning that if this happened again you know she'd probably die so she needs to figure it out like this she's lucky she didn't die that time and that's what happened again he says some interesting things about the door being locked from the inside and the police were happy enough with that and you're like oh wait that's a weird happy enough with that what that's a weird way to say it also, an interesting fact I learned from YouTube, the newspaper article, you can read the whole article, and the article about her death says nothing about the room being locked from the inside. So Sidney Pollock tells him all this. He tells him it's not a like really a big deal, but he's gotta shut up about it. Okay, Bill, let's 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 cut the bullshit, all right? You've been way out of your depth for the last 24 hours. You wanna know what kind of a charade? I'll tell you exactly what kind. That whole play-acted, take-me, phony sacrifice that you've been jerking yourself off with had absolutely nothing to do with her real death. Nothing happened to her after you left that party that hadn't happened to her before. She got her brains fucked out, period. When they took her home, she was, she was just fine. 
and the rest of it is right there in a paper. She was a junkie. She OD'd. There was nothing suspicious. Her door was locked from the inside. The police are happy. End of story. So then we're left with a bunch of questions. Tom Cruise basically is more out of the circle now than he ever was. Like he, it's like, and it's like the the biggest insult. To like, no, there's something there, and to know you're not allowed to be part of it ever. S- seemingly, Sidney Pollock's character and his cult have control of lots of things, like. He knows about everything Tom Cruise has been doing. And it's like he says he's been followed, but there's stuff that I'm convinced even the guy following him couldn't have known about that Sidney Pollock knew. So it's like not only was he followed, but he probably knows the owner of that hotel. Yeah. And well, and especially Alan Cummings said he had a bruised face when he was leaving that night, which he was telling them, like as you were saying, like he shouldn't have told that kind of information, you know. But that's already kind of hinting that an outsider already telling him something that he, he saw himself that freaked him out. So I don't know. I think that's just Sidney Pollock just trying to like manipulate him. Like everything's fine, you know, just live your life the way you were and forget about all this. It's damage control. Like he views Sidney Pollock as somebody who's being withholding and trying to like keep him out of the club. Yeah. That's why it's so, he's like, you know, but like really, I bet in that scene from Sidney Pollock's point of view, again, he's like throwing him a branch. He's like, dude, I can't, I got no say in this. Like (laughs) it doesn't matter what I do. Like I'm trying to like help you. Like I've, I'm the one who's telling them you're going to be cool from now on. And if, if you're not like, it's going to be out of my hands, man. I know like, it feels like he's the powerful guy, but I still think he's a, a mediator at that point. Oh yeah. Cause he even says, or he tries to claim, Oh, there's higher people above me. And I'm just, you know, yeah. Yeah. If you knew the people at that party to be shitting your pants. Yeah. You know, I'm sure it's all, you know, all kinds of powerful people, not just people at that party in the beginning, probably like politicians or whoever, you know, you assume government yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> High yep, power celebrities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like definitely implied, <laughs> but again, is he just fucking with them? Is he, it's back and like, forth. Yeah. I also wonder another interesting part of the movie that always messes with my head. The way he got exposed was not knowing the second password at the party. That was like the final straw. Yeah. He asks uh, Sidney Pollock in the big final revelation scene about that. And he goes, oh, there was no second password, man. That's what you got caught. That's why you got caught. When he says Fidelio the second time at the door, and in the ceremony, they say, what was the door password? Mm. I'm convinced at that point, they knew with the taxi, this guy wasn't allowed. They told him, let him in. Like, the only way to deal with this guy now is to, like, really catch him. Like, we can't just kick him out because he's just going to come back every day. Like, he still does. I know. And so... Because Sidney Pollock also says when he's telling him everything, I don't even know how you got past the door. Because they do ask for a password at the door, which he says Fidelio again. Mm-hmm. Why would he even say that if there was no second door password? So Sidney Pollock is kind of given away that he's lying in certain ways, you know, in my opinion. That's how I interpret it. Because the way he was in the beginning, too, and I keep going back to that, but that already kind of shows that he, he's going out of his way to cover this up as much as possible. There's nothing medical. We have to, like, sneak her out. It's like, okay, geez, like, this this guy's already scummy from the get-go. Very boogie nights yeah. when uh, the girl ODs, and they're just, like, they just treat her like, like literally just, like, trash now. Like, the city park is, like, disgustingly it's indifferent so about up. the girl's well-being. Yeah, I, I know. At the beginning. And I, but, it, but I also see, like, adds to that ending, because now I'm like, I don't know. This kid was pretty scummy from the get-go, too, and, and the fact that he's like he's lying i he ha, he's definitely lying but just like tom cruise will never know exactly what he's lying about why he's lying about it 
Yeah, and I, actually thinking about it, I think it's on purpose too because even when you rewatch it, 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 it you really when you know like what the finale is and what that guy's trying to deviate around, it's like no, you're just totally just trying to shut this guy up because if he, he goes leans in more, he could expose more, and literally like it's not going to be pretty for him, his family. Literally, it's almost like threatening. He really gets so many warnings. Like Nick tries to stop him, the prostitute, supposed prostitute. I, again, I think also the fact that they call them hookers and prostitutes all the time is another thing where it's like but she was she was like a beauty queen like so why is another way of like denigrating them and like trying to put it frame things to nick yes it's another way of manipulating it's like oh this wasn't a worthwhile human being she was a lady she's a sex worker like yeah. it doesn't really matter if what happened to her so don't worry about it man like she od'd and also by the nature of him, I guess power play is one thing, as you could tell this guy's literally trying to climb his way to, for more power. But when he's comforting the, the you know the girl, the prostitute in the beginning was like, oh, he's still treating her like a human. He's not like treating her like she's sexual. There's still something compassionate about him, and especially with the other prostitute that he, we forgot to mention that who disappears in the film. You are a very, very lucky girl. You know that? I know. You're going to be okay this time. But you can't keep doing this. You understand? Yeah. You're going to need some rehab. You know that, don't you? I know. Okay. But at least, like, his character seems to treat her with compassion, other than that fact. But then the other girl, too, who he sees and also mysteriously disappears because he goes to, like, see her again, the the one he meets uh, right before meeting his friend Nick at the bar. Like, she meets a prostitute. They almost have a thing. And she mysteriously just disappears because yes. she has HIV or something. I don't quite know how to say this. You don't quite know how. Mm. Mm. <sighs> well... Considering that you were with Domino last night, mm. I think it would be only fair to you to let you know that um, she got the results of a blood test this morning and uh, it was HIV positive. HIV positive? Yeah. Well... Do you think she was lying? Because it just seems so random. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. It, did, it did seem like she was toying with him a little bit. But I also think it's, it's another weird cover because at first I thought she was like, because I remember when I saw it last time, I always thought like, oh, was it, that's the girl that dies. It's that girl, but it's not. It's the, the one that Sidney Pollock was with in the beginning. But I also suspecting that that girl was also at the party as one of those girls and thinking that maybe she also was tied to him or maybe when it was followed, you know, that like maybe she got brought in to be questioned or also maybe killed off screen. I think she easily could have been one of the girls at the party. And, and that could be why she's fucking with him because she knows how out of his depth he is yeah no that that could be a possibility but there was also a moment that that one girl took him away but there was another girl they're trying to get to him too so i wonder if that could have been her or not someone else too like oh that's right yeah so i don't because there's another girl that the red the red coat leader 
says whispers something to her and points at him and then she comes up and starts talking to him and then another girl randomly comes up and starts hating on him yeah yeah so uh, so you assume the red could have been one of those girls it'd be interesting to try to find some kind of detail yeah that might give you a clue as to who if she's at the party at all you really think everybody could be like the russian guy you wonder we mentioned that he was like seemingly prostituting his daughter pretty much confirmed by the end of the movie like like i said when he's the day after the dream he goes back there and sees the girl with the asian guys again mr millich last night you were going to call the police well uh, things change we have come to another arrangement and by the way, if the good doctor himself should ever want anything again, anything at all, it needn't be a costume. You wonder if he's not involved with the party, providing girls for the parties too, because there's one interesting connection. At the very beginning, of the, when the two girls are hitting on Tom Cruise, they mention... He says, where where should we go? Or like, where are we going? You know, because they're kind of leading him off. And they say, at the end of the rainbow, you want to go to the end of the rainbow? And he's like, oh, that sounds interesting. You know, where would that or whatever, blah, blah, blah. The costume place where he gets his costume is called <gasps> Under the Rainbow. Oh, shit. The rainbow logo and title is shown many times, and it does stand out. It's always been interesting to me because it also connects. I always think about Somewhere Over the Rainbow, which is like a wishful song about a girl who's living in like really bad conditions that she's unhappy in, mm. and it's her wish of escaping this life and finding a new, happier one. And so I feel like calling the place that's a front for prostitution, seemingly, under the rainbow is also kind of like a weird corruption of the over the rainbow song and the concept. We never actually go into the shop under the rainbow. He always goes into the costume shop above. above and I also yeah. thought that was really interesting. What was underneath? Cause I don't think we ever see what's in the basement. Could be a prostitution thing. Like it couldn't be something like that. Also when he asks about a costume with a mask and a cloak, he brings it back to a room that seemingly is like secret. It's like a sliding door. He hits a button for yeah. and, and it's, the lighting is different. Like the outside, it's very normal costumes for Halloween and whatever. In the back, all of a sudden, it's very eyes wide shut costumes. It seems in hard to not think he's involved with the cult stuff as well. And if not, maybe potentially a facilitator of outfits so you don't ever get caught buying a secret sex outfit like Tom Cruise does. Yeah. You know? potentially the women for the party and a way to launder money. He he could be a front in a major way. And he also lets him in when he finds out he's the Sidney Pollock's doctor. And that's like, oh, you're his doctor. And so I think that scene, he assumes he was invited to the party. And so he's kind of like, oh, maybe this is one of his friends. Like he's always sending his friends to me for the parties. Yeah. Maybe this is that guy. And that's why he's very like prodding at the beginning and then eventually lets him into the room, but also seems to be kind of aware that he doesn't really know what he's talking about and like kind of so i i wouldn't be surprised if that guy called the party and was like hey somebody just came here and bought a costume from me i don't know who he is like he said he was your doctor and so i think even before he comes to the party they were they knew he was coming and like we're ready and had already decided the plan 
it's such good details, especially about the women at the party saying about End of the Rainbow. I didn't even think about that because then the, there's a rainbow shop connection. Really weird. And I have to agree. I think that guy is in on it because even the following day when he comes back to the costume shop, there was just something already weird. It almost like something got reset in a way that like everything's normal. Like the girls with the two guys that she was running away from being disturbed from the night before. Yes. And then the following day, they're, they're all there, including those two guys, and they're all just like normal. Just like, yeah, they're... Oh, hey, see ya, bud. Yeah, as if like... Yeah. You didn't see anything and if if there was not an issue but it almost felt like something was connected there something and i think that was probably the leeway of how they all know and started following him because he went to that costume shop getting something that he's not called classified to get you also wonder if that business where it seems just like a shady prostitution ring was a way to get blackmail on people where he'd have his daughter invite these rich guys over like they're, she's doing to Tom Cruise. And like he does again, the second time he comes, he again offers his daughter to Tom Cruise. If it's not a way, a way to get blackmail on the people at the party. So it becomes kind of this one-stop shop where they can, you know, offer up the daughter, try to get blackmail. And maybe you don't ever get to the party unless they get the blackmail dirt on you first. And that's, again, why they had to be so strict with Tom Cruise is because they didn't have the the blackmail on him. Because, again, how do you keep the secret? Like, this in this universe, it clearly is a well-maintained secret. Like, Tom Cruise has been friends with Sidney Pollack for a long time, it seems like, and had no idea he was involved with a weird sex cult. Like, cl- clearly had no idea. And this movie challenges Tom Cruise's manhood quite a bit, not literally, but his character. It, it almost plays on the established like persona of Tom Cruise, where he starts out as a t- typical Tom Cruise character who's on top of the world, <laughs> owning it. He's always looking sharp, flirting with all the girls. Everybody's mm-hmm. kind of smiling at him and just basically totally deconstructs him after he learns this thing, you know, and like kids on the street are bumping into him and they're, so once he's in his nightmare, basically everybody's just like poking holes in his persona and like who he thinks he is. Yeah. And like every time he's like trying to like get in the club, he thinks he should be a part of Hmm. like people like, Oh no, no, no. Like you're not even on the level. Like you're not even close. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'll tell you everything. I'll tell you everything. Because especially at the ending, we, he comes back home and sees the mask on the bed, and it's like, like almost like metaphorical because she doesn't see anything there when you know nothing's there to her eyes, but he's seeing like this mask thing there. Is right the mask not literally there? I have actually. this feeling there's just something weird about it because like I feel like there's just something dreamy about that mask. It's there. more of a uh, telltale mask. Yeah, like he's forever now like stuck with this mask it's, that he his he's, conscious haunting <laughs> already. That like you got and it's funny he can't even last like one day without giving in and telling his wife which is kind of sweet when you think about it but it is hilarious just how soft he actually like no wonder they didn't let you in the club dude you would have told (laughs) 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 i know and 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 to keep talking about that mask I, i think that could also just be like that symbolism of him like 
all right, man, are you going to put, keep putting that mask on in front of your wife or are you going to finally open to yourself and be with her, which is what happens right after. And like wake up too. Like she says, now we're finally awake. Like in that, yeah. they weren't awake to the end of the movie. Yeah. But the awakening wasn't realizing about his wife. It was realizing, didn't know himself and didn't know his own limits and desires. Like another breaking point in the movie was when she's like, hey, when you have your hand on a girl's breast, as a doctor, what are you really thinking? And like, what do you think she's thinking? And he keeps being like, I'm professional. I never, it's all above board. And she, I, I don't think she cares. Like, I think she is, she knows, like, you can't help it. Like, that's kind of the point. Like, she knows if you, a breast, you're not going to be able to not think about it. It's like how we're wired as humans. And so she just wants him to admit that he's like human, basically. Like the fact that that was a breaking point that she could, he couldn't be honest with her. And throughout the movie, we realize he can't be honest with himself about what's happening. She's just trying to, like, literally, like, strip this guy down from his facade, you know, trying to really get to, like, again, like I kept saying, this movie has the whole mask thing. It's almost like, who is really this guy who says he's a doctor? He's my husband. He just, she just wants, like, honesty. Like, she actually, yeah. I think she actually was really, like, had good intentions and just got, like, frustrated. It's like, oh, you really can't take your mask off. Like you said, yeah. there's tons of mask symbolism. You can't take your mask off around me. Like, I know you have to be that doctor, professional guy in public, but, like, I'm your wife. You can tell me if, if like, it, sometimes you do have invasive, like, sexual thoughts about your your people. Like, it has to. Yeah. Like, it has to be that way. Otherwise, you're a robot. Like Yeah. And then she went out of her way to, like, just say, like, I almost cheated on you with this guy on the vacation we were at with our own daughter. So it's, like, she's trying to get him to be, like, come on. Like, you know, we're, not, we're not perfect. But I didn't, she didn't go with it. That was the point, too. Yeah. No, but it's like you say, though, this movie we're seeing from Tom Cruise's perspective, though. So seeing that scene, it does feel like she's attacking him and, like, she's turning into this, like, cruel, like, vindictive person but i i think if we saw it from nicole kidman's point of view it would be somebody like reaching out being like it's okay to like admit that you're a human like like you it's not cheating to have like thoughts but it is because of his ego and his insecurities and and you know they've been living eyes wide shut and she says now we're alive and like we can or awake, we're awake now, yeah. is one of the last lines of the movie. The very last mm -hmm. line of the movie is incredible yeah. and hilarious. Yep. It's like a punchline. It all leads up to a punchline of the film. We're awake now. And hopefully for a long time to come. Forever. Forever. something very important that we need to do as soon as possible. What's that? Fuck. 
they clearly like each other and clearly have like love in their relationship i would say the end when he gets caught sort of he he breaks down and cries to her and she she's much bigger than him in the frame like he looks there's a lot of scenes in this where he looks like a little kid especially at the end of the movie they they shoot him so he looks like a small kid in the frame when he's sitting on the couch in the morning oh, yeah, yeah. after she finds out and the seemingly has admitted everything like again a little kid like, <laughs> this is trouble. everything i just wanted to be over help me yeah. <laughs> and nicole kidman is shot in a close-up and her face and the head look really big and like mm. uh dominating the frame and so it's like it really the power dynamic has flipped but but more so it's like equalized like where he is coming submissively admitting that he is doesn't always need to be the biggest person in the relationship and doesn't always need to be in control yeah and as everything unfolded you realize yeah they are kind of in a strange marriage but the shot gives it away that when she's looking at the mirror at herself a little bit it's always kind of showing something's off like something is off-putting already from the get-go oh like the beginning when they're when he starts like feeling her up and yeah it's just kind of weird yeah but she's watching yeah, herself totally. kind of you know watching them screw so there is there is already yes. like a hint from the get-go that like yeah, something's already rocking, and it also already establishes well, the and, and you could argue that represents her feeling outside of what's happening, because yeah. she is watching them in the mirror, and she can't, you know, she's seeing it from literally a, a third-person perspective. Yeah, or, like, she's already feeling, like, awakened from this whole, like, you know, facade that she's living in. You know, she's now That's kind a great of seeing point with through. the mirror, man almost like clockwork orange where she's staring at the screen as it opens again i keep yeah, playing clockwork yeah. a lot there's some clockworkness in this movie that seeps through no, it is kind of like a kubrick stare which doesn't in signify somebody's like not in a good headspace or maybe having kind of like a nervous breakdown i think yeah that's like usually how it's used is when somebody's like finally cracked yeah because like oh, clockwork orange the first shot of him is the kubrick stare and so it's like saying immediately this guy's already like crazy. Like he's, we're starting with him in madness. Yeah. And she has that resemblance. And even the baby of 2001 at the end, like staring at the camera, has similar eyes, like positioned the way she does. And I'm looking at too deeply, but uh, no, no, um, man. I mean, with Kubrick, you never freaking know, man. I feel like yeah. just any little detail like that is worth, worth thinking about. When you do it on a film for a small amount of time, it requires it extraordinary concentration and a lot of the time you don't achieve it because you're still aware and you always have a feeling of oh I wish I'd just been able to try something else whereas with Stanley you get to the stage where you don't notice any of it partly partly you're tired <laughs> which is actually a very good thing sometimes when you're acting because it means that it you're not trying to produce emotions or trying to be this or thinking this is how it should be. It just happens and just sort of comes out of you. This was based on a short story, and it's called Trom Novelle. This is a pretty accurate retelling of Trom Novelle, actually. I watched a synopsis of it, and it's it's very similar, like beats. Like, oh, wow. it's, it's like almost the exact same idea. But the interesting thing is the original story had a much bigger storyline about them being Jewish mm. and how Jewish people in that time weren't accepted. And so, like, there's a very similar scene where he runs into a group of, like, hooligans at night who kind of bump him and talk shit to him. In this movie, they call him a slur for gay people that I won't say. In that movie, though, I think they reference, or that book, the book, I, I saw clips from a movie that was based specifically on Trom Novell. They reference him being Jewish, and actually the author lived in 
pre-Nazi Germany and was around when the Nazis actually took over. And like his books were one of the books that were burned when the Nazis, I was like part of the book burnings with Schnitzler oh, books. Like they did not like him because his books were very much about like Jewish identity. And so what's interesting is the characters there, there was a heavy theme of them being Jewish and it's almost completely erased from our version of it. Interestingly, the author of the screenplay that wrote it with Kubrick was also Jewish. Frederick Raphael? Yes. Hilariously, he talked a ton of shit about the movie and wow. Kubrick after he died and oh. like didn't seem to really like him because he changed, Kubrick changed things about his script that he thought was preposterous, which seems to be a common thing with Kubrick and the source material he writes mm. from because King hated him too. To get through this, so one of the things that really bothered the writer who wrote the original draft of Trom the Trom Nobel adaptation was that Kubrick removed almost every hint of Jewishness in uh, in the couple. And he felt like he was trying to hide because Kubrick was actually born into a Jewish family. And mm. I don't think he was ever religious, but they're clearly, he had a Jewish upbringing as far as I know. And for what I've read, never really talked about it. Some of his movies do deal with some themes. Like a lot of his movies are about like outsiders, like Barry Lyndon is about like an Irish guy in England, which was like, again, another culture that was like considered lower and like not part of the real elite, you know, even no matter how rich you get. So there's like parallels with that. Once I learned that, so there's menorahs in this movie in their house and we see a menorah, I think like three times or like in three places. Like there's one in their bedroom at the beginning of the movie. There's one in the hallway. He turns off the Christmas light turns and walks through the hallway and then there's a menorah like lit up perfectly like there's a light on it exactly mm -hmm. and that felt symbolic and turning off the christmas light and then the menorah being highlighted by like a spotlight almost it, it's interesting because that was what i was pointing out with the menorah and the christmas tree like maybe there was some more to that and shout out to a channel called Collative Learning, uh, who talked a lot about this theory. And like, I listened to this before I watched it. And so this really like pointed my eyes to it. Collative Learning, it's a really great channel. It does a ton of just like weird, cool theories about movies that are really interesting. We talk about masks and we talk about people not like living them true selves and like not knowing who they are. With the menorah, once you realize it, it almost feels like Christmas is like haunting the movie. The theory would be that they are like closeted Jews. Like but the author of the screenplay actually said, I feel like Kubrick was hiding his Jewishness and that Kubrick was like, it offended me because this is like what successful Jews do. Once they get successful, it's not as polite to talk about your Jewishness and it becomes detrimental. So you kind of abandon your identity. In real life, accused Kubrick of that with this script. Mm -hmm. But I think that's actually the point of, their characters is that is what they are it's a very layered deep down mask they're wearing but it is like every day they're going out and like pretending to celebrate christmas even though they're not actually christians and they at home are going to celebrate hanukkah and they do have the christmas tree mm -hmm. but again i think it just represents the duality of their situation again it's like christmas is haunting the movie there's like one scene where there's like a santa just like up on a shelf like staring at the characters the whole scene and it was like it almost felt like ominous 
it added a really interesting layer to it. And just like him being an outsider was like so much deeper with that context. Like not only is he new money, not only is he like not invited to the party, he's a little short. They really highlight Tom Cruise's shortness in this movie. He is always shown to be much shorter than Nicole Kidman. Mm -hmm. Like, and I think most times you try to make your lead actor look bigger and look taller and you don't want him to look shorter. Cause that's like, again, a classic like male dominant thing is being tall, you know? And so to highlight that and, literally make him look small throughout the film that's an interesting observation like i i i think i, I read that fact after like watching the movie because i didn't even think about like oh they are jews and i remember maybe the first quick second i did see a menorah somewhere but i didn't think too hard about that but knowing that detail and the author's backstory more that's that's very fascinating actually and it's almost another layer of like again like you said another mask they have to wear to pretend they be part of this already this festivity you know that they're not yes. really part of it festivities are a theme in this film we already see the big party and then the party in the beginning too yeah yeah that's true dude christmas is just like almost another party they're not really invited to yeah, but they have to act their way to be normal in that world, especially and for their kid in. and the Christmas shopping at the end, you know. I was going to say, see, the, and then when they, the fact that the finale is them going Christmas shopping, you're like, oh, maybe they aren't Jewish. Maybe, I don't know. Again, another open and ended thing, though. There's no evidence one way or the other, but it is interesting, the menorah contrasting the Christmas stuff and how if this movie is from Tom Cruise's perspective, maybe it's how he views the holidays at this point where it's like the menorah in his life isn't even noticed again another like trying to be somebody he's not kind of mask yeah so it was written by schnitzler he was actually friends with sigmund freud they were actually friends and would correspond discussing each other's like philosophies so they were actually freud's sex stuff that he would talk to the author of trom novel about and so he actually like disagreed with him on some fundamental ideas. And so like, it's pretty fascinating when you think that Eyes Wide Shut was created by a contemporary and like actual like friend of Freud. It, it would almost, it almost feels cheap to call it Freudian because it's so obviously Freudian. Right. Yeah, it's weird sex stuff. Of course, it's, it's Freud. This literally <laughs> is like Freudian and like almost like he kind of felt like he understood humans better than Freud. Like there was a letter mm. where he's like, like, your stuff is really on point and I agree with like 99% of it. But I think at the end of the day like i see humans like a little bit more clearly than you do the jewish stuff is interesting but then that factor as well like it's just a really fascinating origin story for this movie it makes sense there's something freudy as you were saying about like the, the vibes and the themes and the the sexual desire the nature and just how innate sexuality is to human like a big part of freud was just how like oh no everybody is like a weird sexual person like yeah like we all pretend we're not but at the end of the day which seems to be proven truer and truer as, as time passes and society <laughs> does what it does it's like us humans that is our nature we're, we're sexual beings you know or we're meant to procreate i mean seeing the, how graphically they show nicole kidman hooking up with the sailor the navy guy which was crazy reading behind the scenes for that one because i guess 
like Tom Cruise had to sign something where he could not be on that set for that for that sex scene. And it was shot in like six days just to get it right. It's intense. It's not it's not it's pretty. I was I, I turned to Becca, my wife, when we were watching it. And I was like, and that's his real wife. Like, that yeah. is actually his. I was like, that's actually more real to Tom Cruise than it is to his character, because his character is just imagining a fantasy yeah. that she had. But Tom Cruise, the actor, that was his actual wife. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Getting macked on by I some know. hot model, dude. I know. And I was like, I wonder. That's like, I know acting is acting, but the fact that it's about you basically being a guy whose wife is macking and then actually happening. We told him right at the beginning, whatever it takes. And the two of us together, you know, we you have to say i'm glad it didn't it didn't happen in the first year you know years of our marriage it would have been very difficult to confront those issues and 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 even though we had a very strong bond and but you know it would have been very difficult for us to do that i don't know what would have happened i'm not saying that our marriage would have broken up but i'm just saying it would have been much more difficult and even there were times where it was very difficult during the making of the movie times where you know the the characters are at odds and all of these the you know these raw you know, emotions are there, and you can't, you know, when you're in the middle of a scene, you, you know, I'm especially the way Stanley's working, the way I work, you don't just fire it off and go, okay, honey, what do you think? You know, you're, you're respectful and disciplined about it, but it, it does, it does invade your life. It is there. It is pervasive, especially I worked every single day. Again, they got divorced two years after this movie came out. They both claim it had nothing to do with the movie, Actors get divorced all the time. I think even the fact that people at us, people like us, are probably at the time too, were talking about it in this way, where it's like, oh, how much of this was real? Like, oh wow, did this? This must have been kind of weird to for them. Even that would mess with your head. Even if the movie didn't, like, even just the people wondering about your relationship and if it was affected by this crazy sexual psychological movie directed by the most like manipulative and like chess playing director literally of all time who like it seems there's a lot of stuff i read where he really got to know them well and used their like they were best friends by the end of the movie like tom cruise was one of the pallbearer pallbearers at stanley kubrick's funeral the last day of shooting a day that uh you know, I both looked forward to and dreaded, you know, look forward to because I just, you know, there was an, enough with Dr. Bill in some ways, you know, and dreaded because I didn't want the experience to, with Stanley to end. And, and I remember saying, hey, you know, I was walking out and I gave him a kiss and a hug and I said, you know, I said, I love you, Stanley, you know that. And, uh, and he turned to me, and he was just right there, and it was just a quiet moment that it was late at night, and he said, you know, I love you too. And he said, thank you, and I said, thank you. And it was much like the moment of, uh, you know, of the last time we spoke. Like, that's how close they were. And Nicole Kidman apparently said that he knew her better than her parents do. So they, they were, like, bonded by the end of the movie. He would use what he knew about them to get their performances. I became so confident with him. I mean, he just gave me such confidence as an actor and really allowed me such freedom as an actor. He would say, OK, you've done a few takes. Now you can just do what you want to do. And he lived films. He loved films. And 
a lot of the time we can say, oh, that's pretentious or, oh, well, you know, there's so many other more important things in the world. And yes, there is. But the great storytellers of our past and our, our, are also, and of now, are so important to our future. And I think Stanley gave me a belief in that again. The redheaded, the second roommate who we meet after uh, afterwards, mm -hmm. who tells Tom Cruise that the friend was HIV positive. Yeah. She was supposed to film for two weeks and ended up getting called back and in total filmed for two months. And she has seven minutes of screen time. Oh my gosh. And so there was just like tons of reshoots and, and really long shoots. And so like Tom Cruise is like, I think why he did it is like, he wanted us to like break down. And like, basically when you say something over and over, like you forget what the meaning is. And like, he wanted them to be actually delirious you know, Stanley would say, look, we got to earn every scene with this character, every single moment with this character. And the two, and he knew that, you know, in times when I just get frustrated with myself, at times that we couldn't get it, you know what I mean? It was just like, you know, fuck. It just, uh, or you just know when you don't have that, it, that fire burning that day or if I was tired it just you know and I bring it upon myself you know because I demand a lot of myself apparently the bedroom scene that I talked about that's about 20 or 15 minutes long that I I really loved they really did it so much that at that point you can like feel that they are like kind of kooky like it's it doesn't like like it's such a good performance like you, you can tell they really are like just like sick of saying these lines and like just want this to be over and that's what the performance is like that's mm. how the people in the fight feel too you know we debated this scene a lot stanley and i and he, he would say to me nicole you should be a lawyer because i would debate each issue of the scene and each issue of alice's arguments and sometimes I'd find flaws in her argument. And I would say, but hold on, no, no, we've, we've got to fix this because, because I wanted to be right, you know? And he said, the key thing here is, Nicole, you're stoned. There is no rational, it's not even a rational argument. You're not standing up in the court of law and having to be everything is perfect. He said, when people argue, they say the most ridiculous things. At other times, they say the most profound things. They, at times, they're right on course with their line of argument, and other times, they veer off and sound ridiculous. And that's what I love about the argument, is that it is completely irrational at times. <laughs> and that's what makes it funny as well. And then when she's, uh, my favorite moment is when I would just start to laugh. I just loved doing that where I just break down laughing, uh, which then segues into this whole story about this man that I fantasized about. Larry Salona, the guy who wrote the article in the movie about the girl who died, he's credited as writing the article in the movie when we see Tom Cruise reading it. And also, he wrote it in real life. Stanley Kubrick had a version of it that he sent to... Larry Salona to touch up, a real journalist. The weird thing, where this bleeds into real life and gets weird, is Larry Salona, or Chalona, I don't know how to say it, also wrote Stanley Kubrick's, broke broke the news that Stanley Kubrick died. He was given first 
access to to write the article basically I, I assume Stanley Kubrick selected him and set it up that way uh somehow or, or I don't know why so crazy in the article so weird already so weird in the article in the movie she is described as being seen laughing and smiling the night she died before her death and specifically in the article in the movie, the they say there's no evidence of any wrongdoing. And almost verbatim in the article written about Kubrick dying, Larry Salona, the same guy who wrote that article, said Kubrick was seen happy, joking around, and completely at peace just hours before he died. And then also said specifically there was no signs of any wrongdoing or there's no evidence of any wrongdoing. Which is like, and again, almost like verbatim how it was written in the article. Collative learning, again, is where I've learned this really great stuff he he puts out. He's a cool guy. Very weird. Very weird. Maybe just like a weird joke. But like Kubrick died of a heart attack, so there was no expectation. And maybe he just like Larry Salona knew Kubrick and just knew his sense of humor and knew posthumously he would have found it you know what i mean maybe it was just kind of his way of like nodding to him and adding a layer of weirdness to his death the way he would have wanted but it does it is fascinating and it is real like it is you can look at both every and almost every version of the article that was like you know there's the main article and then people write their own versions of it with the info has those two quotes in it insane and it's very kind of identical like whoa like because that in the movie, the girl mysteriously dies. And like he also was almost like a mystery death because they even said he wasn't sick before he died. He seemed like he was normal. But it's also even that article is almost kind of like this movie where it's like, is this really what to be, we believe or is something else there that we just don't know? Because, you know, there's, <laughs> I don't know if we should we get into this. So, I was going to say, this is perfect. You should run, keep rolling, keep okay. rolling. I see where you're going. Go, this is perfect. One of the biggest facts of this movie, he, he died literally after he screened the first cut to Warner Brothers. And 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 to be clear, we are treading into conspiracy theory. There are facts around these conspiracy theories, but this is impossible to prove, but it is a lot of these circulate around this movie all the time. Yeah, stuff you see all over the web already that's already been talked about. So it's like, all right, don't kill us. <laughs> and rest in peace, Stanley Kubrick. You're one of the greatest. And yeah, thank you for amen. being an influence to almost... The, but pretty much all modern filmmaking, I'd say, you know, and I, I would be grateful. I'm grateful for, for his works. But yeah, this movie, I, he, he did a screening, and then I think I want to say they were going to do another screening, right? Like where they cut some stuff, and then I think he died before that. I think that was one of those. So you never got to see like a final edit of this film, the, the final version that we got, because they've also said that 27 minutes or to a half hour was cut from this film. And yes, <laughs> I'm so, very curious. And, and, and to add to that, Stanley Kubrick had final edit rights to his movies. Like he was a big enough prestigious enough director that he could leverage that with his deals. So this movie, I know for sure he had final edit, which meant they, the studio wasn't allowed to interfere with his cut of it. And what he, as far as I understand, and he had to screen it to the executives in an early stage, apparently he didn't feel like it was ready because of sound design stuff and whatnot. Apparently, that's what he was saying. Screened it to the executives. I've read articles that say they loved it. I've heard that they didn't love it before. After that screening, I think within like a week, Stanley Kubrick dies of a heart attack. And after that, apparently 22 minutes-ish or 27 minutes maybe 
was cut and they also added that's when they added the cgi hooded people to hide a lot of the more obscene moments in the big party i mean the 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 big theory is that whatever it was it was so devastating to these real life secret societies that the executives of the studio would have been involved with so that they could edit the movie and change it before it was released and what that could have been there's theories that there was more exploration of the prostitution ring that the Russian guy would have been running with at the very least his daughter as an underage, you know, person, that horrible thing that that potentially was expanded or that the party had more scenes that had crazier stuff going on when he's walking around, potentially he walks into more rooms that show specific things that would have been too revealing to real life cults or real life ceremonies that, executives would have been so bothered by sometimes feels like i'm like not sure if it's actually all true i'm like he couldn't have died that soon after no i i hear that because it's just ugh, the whole movie feels like he's he's documenting an experience i'm, I'm sure kubrick is, is such a high profile filmmaker that literally has the power to like have final cut and like guide yeah warner brothers studio and all that and i mean like who knows what big high-profile parties he's been to or seen or heard and i don't know again this is conspiracy talk i'm no i'm just just hypothetically speaking of like how this movie feels and and how it's shot and how it's depicted feels like this is i've told from a guy that also has seen some shit that he, he shouldn't have been seeing you know from a surface level in a way you know like literally stumbling in maybe he stumbled something once i'm this is conspiracy mode don't have to leave this in here so he died six days after the screening <sighs> And that was the first screening of the f- the film. So that was the first time anybody outside of his team, whoever he had in his trust circle, his wife in an interview said that she felt the movie was like very much personal. Like it was about him. Like, I think she like pretty much says that. Like she felt like it was kind of about him recommitting to their relationship too, in a way. Make a film about that seemed so unattractive to me that I, I whenever he brought... And I said, I hate that book. Get it, put it away. And I, and he, he was particularly angry that I hated it and said, why, why? I would like to know why you hate that book so much. So it's one of those conversations. We have two other filmmakers here, Sidney Pollock and uh, yep. Todd Field, who played Nick Nightingale. So it's interesting to have a guy who's a real jazz oh. musician, an actor, who's in, he played small roles in like Twister. And now he's like uh, an, an Academy Award nominee, a director of Tar. Oh so. my gosh, is he one of the people in their little, the cool gang? Yeah, like the cool, yeah, yeah, the, the good, good guy gang, yeah. the good guy group? I think, yeah, <gasps> I didn't he's really young realize. up there. I love Twister, that's awesome. But yeah, he goes off and makes movies like Tar now. So that's like really wild that he, he has. Wait, that's cr- the guy who made Tar? Yeah, Todd Field. Field yeah. He's <gasps> also like a. Yeah, he's a, he makes. I haven't seen his movies. I've only seen Tar. So he's, he's making bangers nowadays. Yeah. Because Tar was just this last Oscar season, right? Crazy. Yeah, he was nominated. He got a lot of nominees for that. So. And I forgot to mention too that Tom Cruise and Sidney, Sidney Pollock, he directed him in The Firm, which I've never seen. And it's been on my list for so long, too. I've been wanting to watch Dude, it. Dude, it's a Kubrick reunion. One other thing that was really interesting with the soundtrack, there's the amazing, iconic piano theme. The dun, 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 dun. That kind of mm-hmm. haunts Tom Cruise throughout the second half of the movie. It, I, 
I'm fairly certain the first time we actually hear it is the scene uh, at the mass ball where he's exposed and he's kind of brought out in front of the group to be shamed. And it's the same scene where the girl gives herself up to save him. That's the first time we hear it. And it sounds like it's the music of the ceremony of the ball. And, you know, it's the piano score, which Nick was the pianist. But right before that, we see Nick being dragged away blindfolded. So we know there's no piano player. And maybe they replaced him or somebody else from the band switched and played mm. that that song. But I I don't think it was part of... I guess it's another thing we don't really know. But I, I feel like they show Nick, the pianist, being taken away. So you kind of know it's not being played in the room, even though it's kind of presented that way, because it even stops uh, when the crowd gasps as if the pianist also was surprised and stopped playing. But then the score haunts Tom Cruise the rest of the movie and kind of follows him out into the real world. It's just like another cool trick. That music was presented as if it was coming from the room, so shouldn't have been played beyond the room. But since it continues out, like it, it drags that dream out into the real world with him and just kind of adds to the feeling that he is being, you know, followed by people from that night or symbolically, you know, followed, haunted by that night. You know, he's mm-hmm. literally being haunted by that that theme that's introduced at like his darkest moment of the movie, kind of like the the ultimate rejection. So just like really cool and used so much, like it's really like repeated so often it becomes like, almost adds to the feeling like you're going crazy too. I agree. You know, it's such an eerie music and like that, the piano is just the little notes just gave me chills the way it's, it's, it's played. And especially that's a good detail. I never thought like, yeah, when he, when he goes away, that music does spark from him. So this is all like, almost like you only hear that music after that moment. You're right. I want to say that's, that's, that's true. I think it is the first time they do the piano theme. It's like, it's like, and it's like the, almost the only song, the rest of the movie. It's like the theme of now, like him knowing about this, this society, this event is now like, that that music carries over out for him discovering it. Ah, that's very interesting. Yeah, and seeps that's into great, everything. His marriage, you know, that's scoring his marriage now. It's scoring his walks around New York. Like it's haunted. It's now. become his like whole outlook. Uh, yeah, is that feeling? Uh, that's a that's a, such a great detail. Like the the music cue itself is already like a character created from this like this cult totally. you know this 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 party it's like him being there and him leaving this that yeah he's like being haunted it's like it's following him you know literally Kubrick's last movie like potentially the greatest like filmmaker of his generation which like again like you said is kind of really his generation like even Spielberg I think says like, he was a Kubrick like student like AI was him making Kubrick's movie because they were actually like friends and talked about it and so like it was almost like left to him to some degree right yeah and I actually thought at first that like when he he took over because he died but I actually found out in watching that documentary I was telling you about that Stanley told Spielberg hey man like I really need to get knee like knee deep and focus on eyes wide shut. Would you like to take over 
AI because he was saying like he wanted that to be his like more mainstream adventure movie like Kubrick wanted to make a Spielberg movie because he because there's this thing that they kind of like rivaled each other at a certain time and Spielberg is like I want to be like Kubrick and then Kubrick's like no like I want to be like Spielberg where he gets the big audiences so AI was supposed to be that like adventure movie so he said to himself I, I shouldn't direct this let me focus on eyes wide and I'll give you AI so it was very interesting that it was almost like in a way it lined up for him you know to me because he because they would pitch i think he would pitch ideas to about it and he would be super being so awe because he's a sci-fi guy you know especially it's about a boy's adventure with a little bear <laughs> he was preparing ai for quite some time as he was eyes wide shut and he was determined after the screenplay that that collectively we did not go forward on which was really his choice he decided to be having more than one choice the next time. So he took that extra year or two and was working on two projects at the same time. One was Eyes Wide Shut and the other was AI. He said in more than one case, I think the ideal director for this would be Steven Spielberg. Uh, if I do it, it may be too stark. I may emphasize too much the philosophical side. He told me I couldn't show the storyboards to anyone. I couldn't tell anyone what the story was about. And I didn't. I didn't tell anyone. Didn't tell anyone. And I mean anyone. So it's almost like interesting that like this is what that, that movie is actually what Kubrick wanted. Because I, I saw something where people were like, oh, this movie is so cheesy and all this. But they said, like, they pull all the facts that that's what Kubrick envisioned. That's what he, he they showed the storyboards. He wanted this yeah. blue fairy stuff. I was going to say, I've <laughs> seen a lot of drawings from his original ideas that match the movie. Really. Like, it was fairly faithful, from what I understand, to Kubrick's vision. Well, this was very fun. We did our best. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you haven't seen Eyes Wide Shut and you listened to all this, please go listen to it. If you're still listening at all, thank you for listening with us. It's very fun. Next week, we are going to have Andy on. He is going to be picking the movie. I'm still waiting to hear what his pick is, so we'll announce that on Instagram. Follow us on Instagram if you want updates about when episodes are coming out. They've been a little sporadic lately, but we're just trying to take our time making sure the edits are good and that we're putting the best quality product out. Angelo, I need to give you credit on the descriptions, but has edited the last couple episodes, which have been really great. So if you enjoyed those, that was all Angelo. You know, shout out to you, Angelo, for doing that and for crushing it, man. Uh, thank you, man. I appreciate that. It's been a lot of fun working through and revisiting Dude. the hangouts, or the, as I say, in the recordings, but it's been a f they're fun hangouts to me. So it's good reliving the, the moments and the conversations. Yeah good man any last thoughts on eyes wide shut i didn't say this but i think i had a nightmare after i watched this that was eyes wide shutty <laughs> i woke up with that feeling i don't remember the dream yeah. but really fun time watching this i think it's gonna be stuck in my head for a day or two especially after talking about it i'm gonna be thinking about everything we said i'm sure i'll think of all these great things i wish i had said on the show forgot to add to that Kubrick back in the 70s wanted to make this uh, comedy with uh, Woody Allen and Mia Farrow or because they were married at the time another married Hollywood couple so it's, it was originally a, totally disconnected from this story the though. same story but with Woody Allen and Mia, Mia Farrow like as like a comedy oh, kind of a dark comedy where it's like com but an adaptation of Trom Novell yeah of this Eyes Wide Show so they've been wanting Kubrick's been wanting to make this for a long time so Weird. Since the 70s. That's cool. Yeah. That's Imagine crazy. that another That's reality. A cool fact. <laughs> Eyes wide shut with Woody Allen and Mia Farrow. <laughs> Directed by Kubrick, too. <laughs> We're wrapping up. 
we've talked enough. There's hours of us talking at this point. Favorite lines? Uh, well, I mean, the favorite line has got to be the punchline of the film. Well, I want to say punchline, but the last lines of the film, you know, like, what can, you know, what can yeah. we do now? And then just fuck, you know? That's really just, like, the answer yeah. is, like, keep love alive, you know? Yeah. You guys are hot for each other. <laughs> and now there's something really important that we have to do. Yeah. It's like, what? What's it, what is it? It's like, Fuck. Yeah. Last yeah. line of the movie. Yeah. Hilarious and very cute. Kind of once you see the like romantic comediness of this movie a little bit. I, I thought that was a really cute line. Before I think it was kind of disturbing. Yeah. My favorite line was this weed is making you aggressive. This pot is making you aggressive. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> totally like caught me off guard watching this time. This was awesome, my friend. It. Thank you for doing this. This was a wonderful afternoon talking Kubrick, talking eyes wide mm. shut. We will see you all next week. Yeah. We're going to keep doing fun, you know, movies. Keep that, you know, I was going to say keep the Halloween energy. That's not it. Keep the momentum going. Yeah. But everybody, please go watch a movie. Go watch a movie.